Good morning, y'all. Isn't it, isn't it funny, the, since y'all are the later crowd and the earlier crowd came up with 4,000 eggs a little while ago, they left the big money part of the Easter eggs to y'all because y'all got to come up with 4,000 eggs worth of candy. So, uh, hey, before we get started this morning, this is <clears throat> I want to just call your attention to one more thing, and that is this. Uh, on March 31st, we're having an interest meeting right after the second uh, worship service for a mission trip to Los Angeles, which will be at the end of September, and <clears throat> to the Dream Center in Los Angeles. It's a life-changing uh, trip. We did it last year, and it really, truly is a life-changing trip. These little trifold brochures are at the connection desk. It gives you some more information about that trip, but if you have any interest whatsoever, even if it's just hearing about it a little bit, be here uh, on the 31st right after the second service, and uh, Autumn and, and Dylan Morgan will kind of walk through what that trip, there are missions and outreach directors, will kind of walk through what that trip is going to look like, and I'm telling you, it's a life-changing thing, so I encourage you to really come and at least hear about what's going to take place. So look, we are now... Um, Moving, moving on through the, the gospel according to Mark, the, the book of Mark. Two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus uh, healing folks, and, 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 and we saw demons freaking out at his, at his very presence in chapters 1 and 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3. And today, we're going to be in kind of in the middle towards the latter part of chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 30. We're going to land this plane at the end today. At the, uh, in 28, 29, and 30, and I want to I at least give you an image of where we're going to land. I want you to look at this starting in verse 28. It's going to be on the screen, and it's also in your, in your worship guide. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And I thought, What? Never, this text says, never be forgiven. Look, this is a tough script. This is a tough passage. It is a passage that people struggle through. I want us to look at it today as we walk, as we work our way up to it too. But to look at it in the context that it was written in, and, but it does say, it says never be forgiven. And I thought God's in the forgiven business. It's what he does. Doesn't he promise to forgive all of our sins? You've heard me say from this stage many, many times that he'll take, our sin, forgive us, and put it as far as the east is from the west. And that is, uh, and, the, and the scriptures say that. And that is metaphorical for they can't get any further apart. So he says that too. And I think when I read this verse, or these verses, where's the grace in that? Where's the love that, that our worship team was just singing about? Where, does this fly in the face of all of that? And I don't think it does. And I want us to walk through and figure out together today and I want to, it's a, this is a tough teaching, but I want us to, to get our arms around that I, I, do, I just don't think it does fly in the face of that. It is a very serious passage, though, and we've got to take the seriousness of those verses to heart. Probably it ought to scare the people that are real comfortable, that are just kind of floating on through life, but it ought to also comfort people that are uncomfortable. It ought to comfort the people that that are scared. Look, I know that there are people 
who think that they have sitting in these seats, you came in today, probably there are people who feel like, think like that they, that you have committed some unforgivable sin and you haven't, and you, hopefully this message is going to bring you some comfort. And through the years, I've, I've sort of encountered both kinds of people, people that are real super comfortable and people that are really super uncomfortable because of something in their past, and I want to address that. Um, some of you probably have this notion in your mind that somewhere along the lines you have committed some unforgivable uh, sin. You have Somehow you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and you will never be forgiven for that. Somebody may have even planted that in your mind. Somebody may, your mom and daddy may have told you that. You may have gotten in a fight with them and you said something and they said something and they said, oh my gosh, you will never be, for you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven of that. You are past the hope of salvation. You may think that, somebody may have told you that. Some of you believe that. Maybe, maybe somebody said to you, you're beyond the hope of salvation. And I think the Lord has a, a couple of purposes in this message, at least from my perspective this morning. And, and one would be to scare the comfortable a little bit, to make you squirm in your seat a little bit. But probably more than that is to comfort those of us that are scared. <clears throat> and so here we go. And I want to, as, a, as, a, as an overlay to all of this, and really to everything we're going to talk about for the next four or five weeks, is for we need to remember the big purpose of the Gospels, the big purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that is to give us undisputed, undisputable historical evidence that Jesus is God, that He is God. That is, get it down to its most simple uh, form, and the message and the purpose of the Gospel writers is to prove to us that Jesus is God. 100% man, 100% God, God in the flesh, Messiah, Savior, the Lord. And it is critical, y'all hear why? It is critical, totally critical, because believing this and committing your life, your heart and your life to Christ is the only way to escape hell and enter heaven. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way. The Bible makes that so crystal clear. The gospel is exclusive. It is exclusive. It is exclusively the only means of salvation. There is no other way. It is crystal clear in the scriptures. The evidence is super powerful, and it's laid down by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the pages of the text of the Bible. And we read it, and we understand it, and we understand its truthfulness, and we embrace it as true, and so therefore we embrace Christ. And the evidence, if you're looking at it objectively, the, and they, look, there's plenty of people that say I'm looking at it objectively, but they're not because they predetermine the answer before they open up page one. If we don't do that, if we look at it objectively, the evidence is overwhelming for us 2,000 years later. But the evidence was also overwhelming for, for them in the, in the Middle East, in, in Israel, 2,000 years ago when it was demonstrated, when it was lived out in the life and the ministry of Jesus. For three years, he crisscrosses uh, Israel teaching and performing miracles, and he started off in Judea in year one, and then he moves up into Galilee, and he's teaching, and he's doing all this stuff 
uh, all around the Sea of Galilee, and he's going from village to village and town to town. And then in the last year of his ministry, he goes back down into Judea, and he's doing the same thing, village by village and town by town. In those three years, he blankets Israel with, uh, with preaching of the gospel message, with, with the evidence of who he is. It's all about, this whole thing is all about his identity. It's all about who is Jesus. And we've got stories of healings and all throughout those three years and stories of, of deliverances from demonic oppression and stories of, of raising dead people. And they're scattered throughout the gospel record, not just in Mark, but in Matthew, uh, Luke, and John as well. And they pale in comparison to the tens of thousands that miracles of miracles that really took place. The pages of the Scripture don't, don't tell us all of that. And so the people who were living there in the context of this chapter in Mark, really in the context of the whole book, but the people who were living there, they were exposed to it, y'all. They watched it. They saw it. They heard it. They, he, there, there's a massive crowd of people that are following him. We talked about that two weeks ago and three weeks ago. Everywhere he went, there's crowds, tens of thousands of people following him. And sprinkled in those tens and thousands of people are scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, teachers of the law. And those are the people who basically were responsible for the Judaism of the day that permeated the hearts and the minds of those people. And so in that crowd is sprinkled some of those people, and they're there as well, and they saw this stuff as well. But they're not there because they believe in him. They're there to discredit him and at the end of the day to get him killed. And if you're there and you saw this and you're following him and you're seeing dead people uh, be raised and you're seeing demons be thrown out and you're seeing all this stuff, the only reasonable, logical conclusion that you can come to is that he is God. It's the only reasonable, objective, logical conclusion. The testimony is clear and the testimony really is obvious. But in spite of what's reasonable, in spite of what's clear, in spite of what is obvious, in spite of the fact that these people saw these miracles Day after day after day after day, thousands of them, the human heart, the human mind, the, the human kind of spirit is blind and dead to the truth often. So all this evidence is mounting up, and, and people haven't made and taken the right response in mass. Some have, of course they have. Some believed, but in mass they did not. And now Jesus has disciples. Chapter 3, he calls disciples. Out of the disciples, he, he, he names 12 of them as apostles. Out of the 12, he's kind of got three that are his, uh, his, his core little group, three guys. And so he's training them up to do what? To go preach a bunch of theology? No. He's training them up to go tell the people uh, about who he is. It's not a complicated message. He's training them up to preach the message of who he is. But most people still reject him in spite of what they've seen and what they and they've seen it. They've walked around and they've seen it. Most people, most of them, said he's a good teacher. He's a good teacher. That's what they said. He's a man. God sent him here. Only a, only a man sent from God could do the things that he's doing. That's pretty much what they said. He's a 
He's a humble man. He's a wise man. He's a good rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's compassionate. He delivers people from sickness. He delivers them from terrible possession of demons. This is a good man. This is a man of virtue. This is a, maybe they even said he's a powerful man. It's what they said. But they stopped at the man. They stopped at the word man. And y'all, it's been that way ever since for the last 2,000 years. People say he's a good man. He's a good teacher. It's pretty much what folks say. Even critics, big-time critics of Christianity, atheists, tend to put him in a category of sort of a misguided spiritual revolutionary. And, and a, a spiritual revolutionary who came to help the poor and he came to help the oppressed. Even though today, that's what they'll say, even though they may deny the miracles, they do deny the miracles. But he, they say he made, a, he made a noble effort to help folks, to help people, and so he's a good man. But here's what I would say to that. It's not an option. It's not an option. Because good people, good men, sensible people, sensible men don't say that they're God. They don't claim to be God. As soon as you claim to be God, you just step outside of the boundary of normal. And make no bones about it, he claimed to be God. And you may have heard this before, and you probably have. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, who was a great English writer, and if you've never read any, any of C.S. Lewis's writings, buy the book Mere Christianity. Outstanding book C.S. Lewis wrote. Here's what he said. He said, when Jesus claimed to be God, there was only three options. Either he is God, or he is a lunatic, or he is a liar pulling off what C.S. Lewis called a grand deception. He's either God or he's a lunatic or he's a liar pulling off a grand deception. Those are really are, that's really the only options. But I'm telling you that you can't come to Jesus with some patronizing nonsense about him just being a good teacher. That is not one of the options. And that's not, there is no evidence for that. And so we have options. He is God, which is really the right option because he had, and we saw it, and we see it in the pages of Scripture, and the people in the day, they saw all of this, that he had power over disease, that he had power over demons, and that he had power even over death itself. He raised dead people. There's plenty of evidence of that. He healed sick people. There's plenty of evidence of that. He delivered people from demonic oppression. There is plenty of evidence of that. All of this evidence is evidence of divine power that gives testimony to the fact that he's God. But if you're still fighting that in your heart, and you may be, you got other options. He's a lunatic, that he's crazy. He's a crazy person like other crazy people have claimed to be God over the years. Or he's a liar that pulled off this massive deception, and he was such a good liar, and he was so deceptive that 2,000 years later we still got Christianity flourishing. Okay, so option number one is what? He's crazy. He's a nutbag. You may just say, he is an absolute certifiable lunatic. Versus, look who said that. Look, verses uh, 20 and 21 in chapter 3 of Mark. Let's look at it. He's collecting now a massive crowd of people because they're bringing him all the sick and all the, the, the demon-possessed. Everybody with issues and people that don't are coming 
to him because they ain't never seen anything like what's going on in Israel at the time. And his family gets word about it. Jesus' family gets word about it. Remember, they're not there. They're not there. He's in Galilee. He's around Galilee, and his family is not there. They don't, and his family doesn't believe in him. Mary, I'm sure, does, his mother. I'm pretty sure she does. She got that mama sense thing. So she probably does. But outside of her, and Joseph, his dad's probably dead because he's really not mentioned in the, and I don't know that he was dead, but I would imagine he was because he's not really mentioned anymore in any of the Gospels. And so, but you got all the rest of his family, and they didn't believe in him. And so come to, to verse 21 of Mark 3. It says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And that those words, take charge of him, to take charge, is really the same language that is used in the scriptures of being arrested. It's like they're thinking, we got to go snatch him up. Some translations use the word seize. They seized him. Because they, why they, why they do that? Because they are convinced that he's nuts. The text says he's out of his mind. They conclude that he's a lunatic. They conclude that he's, he's, he's outside he stepped outside of the boundaries of normal, that he's insane. You've got to remember, they're in Nazareth. That's where his family lives. That's where he's from. They don't believe in his claims. And the New Testament tells us that he did no miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because they had no faith. They didn't buy into this miracles, demon getting rid of stuff. You know, they, they're, they're, we, they weren't in the information age. They couldn't, it wasn't on TV, it wasn't on YouTube. I mean, they, they got word of it. They got word of it. They're not eyewitnesses to it. They weren't walking around with him. They weren't hanging around. They weren't following him. Their conclusion, really, is that this is the final expression of a really odd child. They conclude that this was a, a, a very bizarre child who now has gone off completely off the deep end as an adult. And so they, can, they think, for the sake of this poor guy, this is his family now. For the sake of this poor guy, we've got to go rescue him because he's just lost his senses. And I'm telling you, if you come to the conclusion that he's a lunatic, the odds are pretty high that you don't have a relationship with him. Now, the plus for them, because I want to take this in context, the plus for them is that they were ignorant. They, they, weren't, they, they were ignorant because they weren't following him. They weren't firsthand eyewitnesses at this time. They hadn't been there watching all of what was going on. And so they're coming to their conclusion out of ignorance. They reject him as insane, taking all the word that's coming back to him about what's going on as hearsay. Later on, they did come to faith. Later on, they did come to believe in him. Later on, they did bow the knee and, and, and understood and believed that he is the Lord that he claims to be. They got full information, ultimately. They got full revelation. They didn't have it at the time. Now they did. The full revelation, and then they embraced him later on. So there's bunches of folks, maybe sitting in here today, over the last few thousand years, that conclude that he was insane. Crazy, out of his mind, over the top, had a Messiah complex, really, really thought that he was the Savior of the world, but he really, really wasn't the Savior of the world. And that is forgivable. It's forgivable because that might come from ignorance of the truth. You, maybe you haven't gotten full revelation yet. Today, 
we have full revelation in this scripture. Full revelation is hopefully preached from this stage every Sunday. They had him standing there watching all this stuff happen. So number one option is that he's crazy. Number two option is the po- number two possibility is that he's a liar. And that's what we see starting in verse 22. The teachers of the law, now we're moving from, the, from his family to the scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law. <clears throat> They're the ones who decide, conclude that he's a liar. Teachers of the law who come down, they come down from Jerusalem. And that's important because now we get the big boys, the big shots coming down from the center of authority in Israel, coming down from Jerusalem. They're the brain trusts of all of the Judaism of the day. They're after Jesus. They don't like him. They don't like his message. They don't like what he says. He's a total threat to the power structure that they had put in place over really over the last thousand years. They want him dead. They want him out of the way. But he keeps going from town to town and village to village, and he's doing all these, performing all these signs and all these miracles, and he's going everywhere doing all that, preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation. And the leaders, they were sprinkling in the crowd. They were sprinkled in the crowd, and they were getting ticked because they heard all of this. And so the big boys from Jerusalem come down. And if you go, you know what? If you go back, Matthew nine thirty four. They said the teachers of the law. They said that what he did, he did by the power of Satan. Ma- uh, Matthew ten twenty five, kind of the same thing that he does all of what he does by the power of Satan. And so this is becoming their mantra. This is what they're propagating throughout the people is that he is doing this by the power of demons. That conclusion, y'all, is far more sinister and far more spiritually fatal than this first one, that he's, that he's crazy. And so Mark 3.22, they kind of sum it up. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Beelzebul, for our conversation, Satan. And so he's possessed by Beelzebul. That's their final verdict on the evidence, the verdict on his teaching, the verdict on his miracles, the verdict on everything that he has done, that he is possessed by Satan. Why don't they conclude that he's nuts rather than concluding that he is uh, demon-possessed, that he is, his power is coming from Satan? And here's why. Because they have to explain the supernatural. Insanity doesn't explain the supernatural. Insanity doesn't explain raising folks from the dead and throwing demons out. It doesn't, and healing the sick. You can only say that if you don't know that there's a supernatural element. And they did know. They saw it because they were there. They saw his power, his massive power over demons. Demons running amok out of people when he just walks in the room. They knew he had power over disease because they saw it happen. They had to explain the supernatural power. And it was either God or Satan because those are the only two entities that had that kind of power. God and his holy angels and Satan and his unholy angels. There's no way they were going to admit that the power came from God. And no mere man could do what he was doing So they had to make it seem like they had to propagate the message that he was satanic. So that was their party line. That was the party line of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. 
they use the most despicable slander possible and blasphemy and say that the Son of God was really a servant of Satan. Most folks then, this was a very unusual circumstance. Most folks, even then, they, they wouldn't say that. Most folks, most folks today wouldn't say that. Even if you reject him, even if you are sitting out there and you are not a Christ follower and you reject him, you're probably not saying that he is satanic. Most people, atheists don't even go that far most of the time. But you certainly can't say that he's just a good man because if he's not a lunatic, he's a very bad man. He's a great liar. He's a massive deceptor, uh, deceptor and he's massively deceitful, and he's trying to convince people that, that he is God and he's got this supernatural uh, power. And if he's not God, then that supernatural power has got to come from Satan. Does that make sense? It has to come. You can't deny the supernatural power. You can't. So it's got to come from somewhere. And so these guys, teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, they couldn't just say that he was crazy because crazy people can't do what he did. And he has supernatural power. So that's what they said. And I love this next verse. Verse 23 says that he called them to him. Mark 3, 23, he called them to him. He's like, guys, come here. He puts his arm around him. He's like, I got to tell you something. And, he, and, and he, he, he knew who they were and he knew where they had come from and he knew exactly what he had to say to the people. And he began speaking to them in parables. And he starts in verse 23 with something that is obviously absurd. Verse 23. He says, So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. And he asked this question, How can Satan drive out Satan? Good teachers ask good questions. In fact, good teachers ask questions that put students in a pickle, in a rundown between third and home. How can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Satan is not going around exposing people with demons who are sitting comfortably in synagogues doing their little nasty demon kind of work that they do. He wants them flying under the radar. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But every time Jesus walks into a synagogue, every time the, the demons freak out because their, their cover gets blown. Listen, this Satan dude is a being that was created originally as a holy angel. And he lived in the very presence of God. And he is extremely shrewd. He ain't stupid. Extremely. He's been around a long, long time. He is no fool. And he is not going to be running around tearing apart his own kingdom. And so then in verses 24 and 5, Jesus makes some really obvious statements, some really obvious truisms. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand, a house being some kind of an entity. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. So verse 26, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. He's just brought the whole thing crashing down on himself. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to be kidding. I mean, it's absurd. Satan's not going to do that. Satan wants to destroy the work of God. He doesn't want to destroy his own work. And so from that 
absurdity, he moves to this reality that is undeniable in verse 27. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Look, if you want to go get a guy's stuff, you've got to overpower the guy whose stuff you want to get. And so Jesus is saying the only logical conclusion that you can come to is that I am stronger and more powerful and mightier than Satan. And there's only one who is stronger and more powerful than Satan. And who is that? That would be God. So Jesus plunders the strong man's house. It's exactly what he did. Over and over he exposes demons. He rescues people who had been possessed by demons. And you have to bind the strong man to do that. And so he, he, he is stronger than Satan. And the Pharisees and the scribes that brought all this up, they brought this on themselves because they're the ones that said his power came from Satan. And so realistically, it's nonsense to say that Satan would cast out Satan. And so if he's not Satan casting out Satan then he's greater than Satan, and only God is greater than Satan. So he crushes this kingdom of darkness. So here's the deal. This not a lunatic. He's not a lunatic. That doesn't work. And he is not a satanic, deceptive liar who represents hell, but he really tries to convince everybody that he represents heaven. And there have, y'all, there have been tons of, quote, religious leaders over the last couple thousand years that that is exactly who they were and what they did. But they didn't raise people from the dead. They didn't heal disease. Demons didn't run from them when they walked in the room. So who is he? You're left with one option, and that is that he is God, and that is the purpose of the Gospels. And so we kind of see that played out in these last few verses. I want to read verse 20, starting in verse 28. Remember, this whole thing is about his identity about who he is. Verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this. He said what? He said, he who? Jesus. He said, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said that. Because they, who's they? They, the Pharisees, were saying he has an impure spirit. He said that because they were saying he was a demon. The eternal sin for them was this, that he is demonic. They went to hell for that. They went to hell for that. And y'all are probably saying, whoa, wait a minute. What if, what if I said that? Would I go to hell for that? Look, if you die lost, if your final conclusion in this instance, in this context, if you're standing there, and your final conclusion is that after full revelation, you followed Christ around. Full revelation, your final conclusion is that he is demonic. That is unforgivable. There is no other, there is nothing else. You have had full revelation. You can't get any more than that if that is your final conclusion. That is an eternal sin. That's what he's saying. Now, now I have to say this. In context, this is a very unusual group of people in a very unusual circumstance, and this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit was saying that Jesus is demonic. How does that blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, here's how. Because when Jesus came into the world, 
the New Testament tells us he laid aside the prerogative uh, uh, of his own power. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do the will of the Father, and I do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything I do, he said, is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm laying my glory aside, and the Holy Spirit is going to empower me to do the will of the Father. So if you say Jesus is satanic, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is doing his work through Christ. The Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. The Holy Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted and was with him during that temptation. The Holy Spirit anointed him to go preach the gospel and off he went. And if you were there and you saw that and you walked around and you saw all those things and your final conclusion is that he is demonic, then you're done. And you cannot be saved because that is the ultimate conclusion with full revelation. So that sin is unique to those people that had full revelation. Well, what about today? Could somebody commit this sin? And look, I'm not a biblical scholar, y'all. I love the Bible. I love the text of it. I'm going to tell you what I think about this. And everybody on the planet does not agree with me on this. But I'm going to tell you what I think. Looking at the entirety of Scripture, looking at the entirety of the gospel message, looking at the entirety of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the witness of the other human authors of the Scripture, I don't think this sin can be committed today in the same way. I don't think it can. To begin with, they, he was physically present with them. They walked and talked and hung out and followed and saw all these things happen. And then they accuse him of casting out demons by Satan when he's doing it by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so they were actually rejecting the work of two of the persons of the Trinity. They were rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit and they were rejecting the testimony of the Son. They had an attitude, an attitude of total, absolute unbelief, a permanent rejection of Christ. That is what is in their heart. They were resisting the Holy Spirit, and that's unpardonable. It's the condition of your heart. Again, I think it's impossible to commit an unpardonable sin today. Matter of fact, a better way to say it is unrepentable sin today. If by that you mean this, that you can commit a sin, whatever that sin may be, blasphemy. It, it could be the sin of unbelief. And if what you mean by that is that you can do that, even believe that, and then 10 minutes from now, you know what? 25 years from now, be convicted of that, repent, and, and God will not forgive you? If that's what you mean, no, you can't do that. Because he died for every sin. Not just every sin, but this. The attitude and the state of the unbeliever is what's unpardonable. It is a heart thing. It is not a do thing. It is a heart thing. It is what, what, what is the condition of your heart? When a man blasphemes with his mouth, that is not the thing that condemns him. It's the state of your heart when you die. Does that make sense? That's a, it can be a permanent condition unless you stop resisting. You, can be, you could have been out in that parking lot this morning and you could, for the last 30 years, you could have been cussing Jesus out. That is not going to condemn you. It's not. 
It's kind of stupid and gross. But it's the condition of your heart. If, and if that condition is permanent and you die in that permanence, then off to hell you go. And that should make all of us cry that people actually end up in hell. But you know what they do? 99% of my family, if they died today, they'd be going to hell. And that makes me want to cry. But you know what? You can stop resisting. You can stop resisting by the power of the very one that you're resisting. Think of the irony in that. So this sin against the Holy Spirit that we're talking about is to continually resist His work, to continually resist His conviction in your heart and life and totally reject Him. And if that is where you end up after total, full exposure, that's called apostasy. And if you die in apostasy, you're going to hell. And I hate, I'm, I take no pleasure in that. It makes me cry when I think about it. Because the Holy Spirit's testimony is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I don't care how long. No, forget, you know what? It doesn't even matter what I care. The Lord doesn't care how long you've resisted. You could have resisted for 90 years, you know? And on your deathbed, you got saved. You are 89 years, 11 months, and 29 days, and 23 and a half hours. And you got saved, and you died five minutes later. You got this person over here who got saved when they're 10 years old, and they died when they were 100. They ain't two different heavens. It's not like this guy's in the remedial part of heaven. It don't work that way. Read, look in Matthew 19 or 20, the parable of the workers. This guy gets picked up to work at 9 o'clock in the morning and this other one at noon and this other one at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and they get off of work at 6 and they all get the same wages. Is that fair? Who are we to say what's fair? We're not, I'm not God. You're not God. We don't get to tell God what to do. That parable is totally about the kingdom. And it is about if you got saved Three, look, you don't know what happens at the moment of death. None of us do. We will, but we don't now. So I don't know what happens. I have no idea what happens 30 seconds before somebody died. We had somebody in our church family yesterday that happened to, one of their family members. I don't know what happened to that person 30 seconds before they died. I have no idea. I do know if you die found, you're in heaven, and if you die lost, you're in hell, it should make us weep. It is an exclusive club, but everybody has the opportunity to be in. And I would imagine there are people sitting here today, thus far you have rejected Christ. Your knowledge is increased today. I hope your knowledge is increased every Sunday. And you are in danger if you conclude that He is not the Lord that He claimed to be. Make no bones about it. He claims to be God. And you need to be frightened by this. You do. Some of you may have thought, I'm sure that there are people in here today that came in and thought that they were guilty of some blasphemy that could never be forgiven. And I want you to find comfort. in the. If you're all worried about that, the odds are you didn't. Look at the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, starting in verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he, Jesus, considered me, Paul, trustworthy. He, Jesus, considered me trustworthy. He, Jesus, appointed me to his service. And, he, and here's what Paul's saying. He did all that. He entrusted all of this to me. 
even though I was once a what? A blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy. Even though all of that, Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Look, take this statement. This next statement is, a, is such a truism. All manner of blasphemy can be forgiven except that final blasphemy that says with full revelation, I reject Christ and I die in that apostasy. I reject Him and I die in that rejection. Anything you it's not about what you say. If that is where you are, then, then you are left with the fact of explaining His supernatural power by Satan. And you crucify Him all over again. Way better to remember Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. says you can speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven. Write that, write that verse down. Matthew 12, 32. We are all blasphemers of a sort who have been forgiven if we come to faith in Christ. We're all blasphemers of a sort. All of us who have come to Christ in faith. Don't turn away from it. Get the, you got some revelation today. Get the full revelation and respond. Y'all pray with me. Lord, Father, your word is clear. Your word is convincing. Lord, your word is convicting. And your word is converting. Lord, my prayer is that it would do all of those things today. That it would convince us. That it would convict us. And that it would convert us. And so look, if you walked in today and you weren't convinced, my prayer is that you were convinced today. My prayer is that you are looking and searching for real truth. You pick that Bible up and you search for real truth, you know what you find? Real truth. Read those Gospels. Read them. Pray on them. Meditate on them. And they're going to paint a picture of a guy who claimed to be God and is God. And so if today is the day that you were convinced and convicted and converted, that you believe, you believe that He died on that cross and, and bought you back, and you repent of that sin, and you could have been resistant for 60 years. God don't care. We're, care. we're talking about today. And so if that happened to you, I want you to let us know on that connection card. Please let us know that you were saved today and drop that in the offering bucket or put it at the connections desk out there in the hall and find somebody to talk to, to pray with. You want to come up here and pray at this, at this altar? You don't have to, but if you want to, it's open all the time. The cross is open 24-7. we got a prayer team back in the back that would love to pray with you. And if you just have a prayer concern and a prayer need, let us know and go back there, and they would love to pray with you. So let me pray one more time, and we're going to kick it back to, to the worship team. Lord, we love you today. We thank you that your word is convicting and converting. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough when we were completely unlovable to die on that cross to buy us back from our sin. We thank you that when there is a breath still left in us, there is time to repent and be forgiven. And when we do that, you do put the sin as far as the east is from the west. Thank you so much for that. We love you in Jesus' name. Hey, y'all, so we're coming to a time in our, in our uh, worship where we worship him through a tithe and through an offering. And I'm thankful that we can do that. 
And I know that it's hard to trust Him. I know the last thing that most folks trust uh, the Lord with is with their stuff, with their money, with their financial resources. I get it. I mean, I totally get it. But it's all His anyway. And we have the opportunity to give some back to Him. We have the opportunity to give some back so that the ministries of this church can function. And ultimately, y'all, every the yardstick that we use around here for nickels that are spent is does it lead people that didn't know Jesus to come to know Him? Does it, does it do that in some form or fashion? Or does it help the people that are believers to grow and go find other people that don't know Jesus and would come to know Him? That is, that is the way we measure things around here. And so I want you all to know that, and I want, I, we want to earn, we, we want you to trust the way your resources are spent. We do. And we are open to talk about that anytime you want. So I want, I want, I want you to question that. So let me pray over the offering, and then, and then we'll kick it back to the, to the worship team. Lord, we pray that you would take this offering and the, and the, and the offerings and the tithes that have been given through this week uh, online, electronically, through the app or wherever. We pray that you would take the, that, that, those funds and that you would double them, that you'd triple them, that you would uh, multiply it like the fish in that basket so that we can go out into the world and fulfill your great commission, that we can go tell the world about who you are because it is all about who you are. So, Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.